Welcome to the AAP Board Review Series. This is an educational podcast series that covers high-yield topics in physical medicine and rehabilitation. My name is Dr. Katherine Caldwell. I'm a resident at the University of Pennsylvania in Philadelphia. And my name is Dr. Christian Belisario. I'm also a resident at Penn. In this episode, we will be covering therapeutic exercise. The AAP Board Review Series is for education and entertainment purposes only. It should not be used to diagnose, prevent, or treat any diseases or conditions. The views expressed are solely those of the hosts and do not represent the official views or policy of any entity. Content for the series is based off of current PMNR learning materials and is created by residents for residents. It is not an official board review study guide. Let's get started. Our first case is about strength training. Before we get into the case, I'm just going to go over some basics about muscle contractions. The goal of strength training is to increase the maximal force that a group of muscles can generate. This is affected by the type and speed of contraction, cross-sectional area of the muscle, and recruitment of motor units. If we remember back to physiology classes, skeletal muscle has contractile units called sarcomeres, which are responsible for the contraction of muscles. Sarcomeres go from Z-line to Z-line, with the thick and thin filaments in between. The A-band represents the length of the thick filament made up of myosin, and the I-band represents the length of the thin filament made up of actin. I personally like to remember that the letter A looks thicker while the letter I looks thinner. During contraction, the I-band shrinks while the Z-lines come closer to one another. There are two main types of muscle fibers, type 1 and type 2. Type 1 is slow twitch, more oxidative, and appears red. It is used more so for aerobic activities, like long-distance running. Type 2 fibers are fast twitch, more glycolytic, and appear white. These are used for fast movements. Within the type 2 family, there are also two subtypes. I like to think of type 2A as halfway between type 1 and 2, as it has some oxidative and some glycolytic metabolism, thus it is more fatigue resistant. Type 2B is purely glycolytic and thus fatigues very quickly. Now that we have that out of the way, our first case is a 28-year-old female without significant past medical history who presents to your clinic. She has been doing a strength training program and is frustrated because she keeps pulling muscles, which forces her to take more rest days. Dr. Belisario, how would you approach this? First, I would ask her more about the specific exercises she's doing. There are three main types of strengthening exercises, isotonic, isometric, and isokinetic. For isotonic, the joint moves with a set of external resistance. An example is doing bicep curls with a dumbbell. The dumbbell is the set resistance. Isometric, muscle contraction without joint movement. For example, the plank. Isokinetic, this is using a machine to achieve joint movement with constant speed and variable external resistance. There are also two main classifications, open chain and closed kinetic chain. The difference is whether the distal segment of a joint is fixed to an object such as the ground. In open chain, the distal segment is not fixed, whereas in closed chain, the distal segment is fixed. An example is squats, which is closed chain because the feet are on the ground, versus hamstring curls on a strength machine where the feet are not fixed to the ground, making it open chain. Wow, that's great information. So the patient says she's new to weightlifting and is following an online program that focuses on eccentric muscle contractions. Can you explain what that means? Sure. The two main types of muscle contractions are concentric and eccentric. 
The difference here is whether the muscle is shortening or lengthening. In concentric contractions, the muscle is shortening. Think about the biceps during bicep curls. As the elbow flexes, the muscles are shortening during contraction. This type of contraction has a higher metabolic cost. In eccentric contractions, the muscle is lengthening. Think again about bicep curls, but this time think about the biceps contracting during elbow extension to control the downward movement. This type of contraction has a lower metabolic cost, but does cause more tissue destruction. Okay, so that makes sense why this patient says she keeps pulling muscles since she's focusing on eccentric contractions. Yeah, so I'd actually recommend for her to start with more concentric strengthening until she adapts to training, and then she can begin some more eccentric focus exercises. That's great advice. Okay, let's go to case two. Thirty-six-year-old male without significant past medical history, except for being overweight, comes to your clinic wanting to talk about medical clearance prior to training for an upcoming 5K. He used to be a runner in high school, but due to work and life stressors, he has not regularly exercised for the past five years. When he does the occasional workout, he does not experience any syncope, chest pain, or joint pain. How would you counsel this patient, Dr. Caldwell? He has no significant past medical history, and he's asymptomatic when he does exercise, so he doesn't need any formal medical clearance to participate in an exercise program. I would counsel him that his program should consist of cardiopulmonary endurance combined with a strengthening program. His workouts should consist of a warm-up period, the training period, and then a cool-down period. Warming up allows for stretching of postural muscles and increases blood flow, and it may reduce the chances of getting a musculoskeletal injury. A proper cool-down period allows for a more gradual return of the heart rate and blood pressure, which would reduce the possibility for post-exercise hypotension, which could cause a fall. To advance his program as he becomes more fit, I would counsel him on the concept of progressive overload. This is a strategy that systematically increases the stress placed on one's own body as it adapts, which allows the body to improve its fitness. Basically, his training program would increase in intensity and volume gradually as he gets closer to his race date. Gradual increase is important to minimize risk of orthopedic injury while maintaining his cardiorespiratory fitness. Great. Thanks for all that info. You mentioned that he does not need any formal clearance for participating in a training program. What sorts of patients would require medical clearance before doing formal exercise? Also, what exactly is aerobic exercise? So, aerobic exercise is a type of exercise that uses large muscle groups to perform continuous and rhythmic exercises that are typically low intensity and high repetition. The goal of the aerobic exercise is to improve overall cardiopulmonary fitness. The 2018 Physical Activity Guidelines for Americans, created by the U.S. Department of Health and Human Services, states that people without diagnosed chronic conditions, such as diabetes, heart disease, or osteoarthritis, and who do not have symptoms, such as chest pain or pressure, dizziness, or joint pain, do not need to consult a healthcare provider about physical activity. The American College of Sports Medicine has published guidelines that state which patients warrant screening before starting an exercise program based on the patient's current level of physical activity, presence of known cardiovascular, metabolic, or renal disease, the desired or anticipated exercise intensity, and potential hazards of unaccustomed, high-intensity physical activity. If a patient has angina, chest discomfort, dyspnea, orthopnea, syncope, palpitations, or cardiac murmurs, then further medical clearance should be recommended, oftentimes with exercise stress testing. 
If they previously were asymptomatic during exercise but develop symptoms when exercising, they should stop exercise and get medical clearance. If patients have established diabetes, atherosclerotic cardiovascular disease, chronic kidney disease, and do not already participate in exercise regularly, then they should get medical clearance prior to starting a formal program. Wow. Thanks for the comprehensive information. You mentioned guidelines. What are the current guidelines for exercise for adults? The 2018 Physical Activity Guidelines for Americans created by the U.S. Department of Health and Human Services states that for substantial health benefits, adults should perform aerobic exercise for 150 to 300 minutes per week of moderate intensity physical activity or 75 to 150 minutes per week of vigorous intensity or an equivalent weekly combination of the two. They also recommend muscle strengthening, resistance training, at least twice per week, involving all major muscle groups at a moderate intensity or greater. I would imagine not that many people get that much exercise regularly, and not many know what metabolic equivalents are. What exactly are they? What consists of moderate intensity and vigorous intensity? A metabolic equivalent, or a MET, is a system that estimates exercise intensity by comparing the VO2, which is the amount of oxygen your body uses, during an activity with the VO2 at rest. When you're at rest, the VO2 is about 3.5 milliliters per kilogram of body weight per minute, which is the equivalent of 1 MET. Moderate intensity is 3 to 5.9 METs, and vigorous activity is 8 to 12 METs. Examples of moderate intensity activities include brisk walking at 2.5 to 4 miles per hour, raking the yard, or doing doubles tennis. Vigorous intensity activities include jogging, running, shoveling snow, and carrying heavy groceries upstairs. With all this talk about aerobic exercise, what exactly are the cardiovascular effects of conditioning exercises that patients should know about? Decreased resting heart rate and submaximal effort, increased peak blood pressure during maximal exercise, decreased blood pressure at rest, increased stroke volume during maximal exercise, reduced myocardial oxygen consumption at rest and submaximal activities, and increased maximum vital capacity. Great. This is a great overview of aerobic exercise. Thanks for listening to this case. With that, let's go on to our next one. A 56-year-old male presents for a follow-up visit in your outpatient sports medicine clinic. He has been your patient for years. You've seen him in the past for overuse injuries due to triathlon training. Today, in addition to follow-up for patellofemoral pain, he wants to discuss how his ability to exercise might change as he continues to age. His biggest concerns are his heart and lungs as he wants to maintain his endurance for as long as possible. Dr. Belisario, what do you know about the effects of aging on the cardiac system? Yeah, those are certainly valid concerns since this patient has been so active. So over time, the maximal heart rate decreases. A quick way to determine maximum heart rate is 220 minus patient's age. Cardiac output also declines with aging. As you might remember, cardiac output is stroke volume times the heart rate. Because the heart rate declines, cardiac output becomes more reliant on stroke volume during exercise. Stroke volume tends to decrease with aging as well. The VO2 max decreases with aging, although I'm sure this patient will be happy to hear that in those who exercise regularly, the decrease is smaller. Other changes include increased risk of orthostatic hypertension due to decreased baroreceptor sensitivity and progressive decline in both diastolic and systolic blood pressures. Thanks for the great information. 
This patient was also worried about lung function as he ages. What can you tell us about that? So with age, vital capacity and FEV1 decrease. The decrease in FEV1 is relatively consistent at roughly 30 milliliters per year. Gas exchange becomes slightly impaired with lower PO2, however PCO2 and pH should not change. The maximum minute ventilation declines due to weaker accessory breathing muscles and stiffening of the rib cage, in addition to reduction in elastic recoil of the lung tissues. Older people also have a higher risk of pneumonia due to the changes I just mentioned, plus a weaker immune system and impaired mucociliary action. Now I know the patient didn't specifically ask about it, but do you know of any changes to the musculoskeletal system with aging? Yes, there are several changes that occur, which I'm sure the patient would want to know about. With aging, there is loss of muscle mass and strength, called sarcopenia. This patient would probably be relieved to know that with continued endurance training, his muscular endurance can stay relatively stable. Unfortunately, with aging, there is typically an increase in adiposity. There's a roughly 15% increase at age 30 and a 30% increase at age 80. The risk of osteoporosis also increases with age, which is why it's so important to establish good bone health habits early in life. Dr. Belisario, can you quickly go through some other high-yield aging facts? Sure, you got it. Renal function deteriorates with aging, so digitalis toxicity and side effects from NSAIDs become more prominent. Dysphagia is more common in elderly patients. The decreased ability to discriminate sounds due to aging is called presbycusis. You have to be extra careful with giving benzos to an elderly patient because it's a fat-soluble drug, and due to body composition changes, benzos are more likely to accumulate in older people. Okay, great. Let's go on to the next case. A 61-year-old female with a past medical history of well-controlled hypertension, hyperlipidemia, NEOA, and a BMI of 27.2 comes to your clinic with complaints of low back pain. On your history taking, you do not find any red flag symptoms. So far, she's had unremarkable imaging. And on exam, you note hypertonic lumbar, paraspinal musculature, tight hip flexors, tight hamstrings, and tight hip extenders and abductors. As part of her treatment plan, you want to recommend a home stretching program. What would you counsel her on about mobility exercises? It definitely sounds like the tight muscles in her lower body are contributing to her back discomfort. I would explain to her that mobility exercises are designed to improve flexibility, and they're important for maintaining functional capacity. One of the goals of mobility work is to maintain a good range of motion, which can help patients, particularly older adults, to avoid falls and maintain their abilities to perform activities of daily living. Flexibility is defined as the ability to move body joints through their entire range of motion. These types of exercises should be performed at least three times per week and should consist of three to five repetitions once or twice daily. Awesome. Thanks for that information. I agree that her tight musculature is not helping her back and that stretching would be beneficial for this patient. Would you be able to talk about the types of stretching exercises there are? Sure. Stretching exercises can increase the range of motion by lengthening the tendon and muscle beyond the available range. There is static stretching, where the joint is moved to the end of the range of motion, and this position is held for 50 to 60 seconds. This is a safe technique that can be done in an active or passive fashion. There is also reciprocal inhibition, where the joint is moved to the end of the range of motion, except this time, it's followed by a symmetric contraction of the antagonist muscle group for 5 to 30 seconds. Additionally, there is static stretching with contraction of the agonist. 
Here, the joint is moved to the end of the range of motion, and it's followed by isometric contraction of the agonist muscle for 5 to 30 seconds. Another technique is called ballistic stretching. This stretching method uses repetitive bouncing movements with a rapid stretch. Here, more tension is developed and more energy is absorbed into the muscle and the tendon. There is a higher risk of injury, and this type of stretching can lead to bone avulsion and muscle or tendon tears. Great, thanks for that overview. In the case description, it mentions she has knee OA and she's overweight. I would imagine that she would have difficulty sometimes in performing her exercise program. Is there a type of exercise program that she could do that would be easier on her joints? Yeah, it's possible that her body habitus and her history of knee OA could cause some knee pain that would prevent her from being able to work out. She could do aquatic therapy. This type of therapy takes advantage of the buoyancy and viscosity of water. The weight of a patient can be effectively reduced in proportion to water depth. For example, a person submerged in chest-deep water has decreased weight-bearing load of 40% of their total body weight. Because of this reduction, it could be easier on the patient's knees. The viscosity of the water allows for increased resistance to movement that's equal to the force exerted by the patient. Also, resistance decreases in proportion to the speed of the movement. Great, thanks for listening to this last case. We've covered a lot of information in these cases, so thanks for sticking around. Let's go to some quick take-home points before we go into our last topic. Aerobic exercise is a type of exercise that uses large muscle groups to perform continuous and rhythmic exercises that are typically low intensity and high repetition, and the goal of the aerobic exercise is to improve overall cardiopulmonary fitness. The Physical Activity Guidelines for Americans created by the U.S. Department of Health and Human Services say that adults should perform aerobic exercise for 150 to 300 minutes per week of moderate intensity physical activity or 75 to 150 minutes per week of vigorous intensity physical activity, or an equivalent weekly combination of the two. And they also recommend muscle strengthening resistance training for at least two times per week. Some of the effects of cardiovascular exercise include decreased resting heart rate and submaximal effort. Increased peak blood pressure during maximal exercise, decreased blood pressure at rest. Increased stroke volume during maximal exercise, reduced myocardial oxygen consumption at rest and submaximal activities, increased maximum vital capacity. Mobility exercises are designed to improve flexibility and they are important for maintaining functional capacity. One of the goals of mobility work is to maintain a good range of motion, which would help patients to potentially avoid falls and maintain their abilities to perform ADLs. Type 1 muscle fibers are slow twitch and are used for aerobic activities. Type 2 fibers are fast twitch and used for more anaerobic activities. Isotonic, isometric, and isokinetic all refer to types of muscle contractions. Isotonic means constant resistance. Isometric means the joint does not move. And isokinetic means both the external resistance and speed are constant. Concentric and eccentric are also terms describing muscle contraction. In concentric contractions, the muscle is shortening. In eccentric, the muscle is lengthening. Aging causes many different physiologic changes. Some of the higher yield changes include lower heart rate, cardiac output, VO2 max, gas exchange in the lungs, vital capacity, and FEV1. In elderly individuals, watch out for NSAID, fat-soluble medication, and DIG toxicity. All right, everyone. We just have one more topic to get through quickly. Let's go through some rapid-fire facts related to bed rest and immobility.
During immobilization, strength decreases by 1 to 1.5% per day. Complete inactivity for 5 weeks can result in 50% loss of strength. Muscle mass can be lost at 5 to 10% per week. Just one 50% maximal muscle contraction per day can prevent significant losses. Osteopenia can eventually result from lack of muscles pulling on bone, which in turn causes hypercalcemia. After activity is resumed, calcium takes roughly 5-6 to weeks to return to normal. Loss of calcium and phosphorus increases risk of fractures. Immobilization causes ligaments to lose strength and increase collagen degradation. With prolonged immobility, blood and plasma volumes tend to decrease, and redistribution of blood volume causes postural hypotension. Patients develop immobilization tachycardia, with heart rate increasing roughly half a beat per minute each day of inactivity. Just two weeks of bed rest can result in a 15% decrease in stroke volume. Bed rest causes decreased movement of the diaphragm, weakening of intercostal muscles, and reduced cough, which can lead to pneumonia. Constipation and urinary stasis often result from immobility. Thank you for joining us on the AAP Board Review Series. Thanks again to Dr. Jason Pan and Dr. Frank Caldera for reviewing this episode. If you thought this episode was helpful, please share with others who may also value the content. And don't forget to follow the AAP on the gram, Twitter, and Facebook to stay up to date on the latest news and opportunities. Thanks again for listening.